Hello there. Welcome to the Africa Rights Talk Podcast, a center for human rights podcast series exploring a range of human rights issues through conversations with academics, practitioners, and activists. I am your host, Victoria Amici. Let's dive in. to this episode of the Center for Human Rights podcast series. Um, And then on this particular issue, we are focusing on digital rights. And today we are joined by our colleagues from the kingdom of Lesotho, Mukitimi Tosane, who works for TRC. Our conversation is on uh, the work that TRC is doing uh, in Lesotho on digital rights, but we also want to get a general understanding of where Lesotho stands as far as this uh, digital rights uh, issue is concerned. So this work is stemming from um, what the Center for Human Rights has been doing in Southern Africa on an an advocacy and and research-based project, which was looking at uh, the status of digital rights in Lesotho, and we were also holding uh, workshops um, with stakeholders on this particular issue. And we have uh, had one in, in Lesotho in partnership with TRC, and we had the pleasure of working with this organization. So we just want the uh, TRC colleague Mukitimi to share with our audience uh, more broadly the work that they do. So welcome Mukitimi to this conversation today. Thank you very much, Klenyewe. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And I really appreciate that uh, we're going to have this conversation. Thank you. Um, so, so for the purposes of our audience, just introduce yourself. Who are you? And uh, also just speak briefly as well on the work that TRC does. Thank you very much, Klenyewe. I am Mugitimi Susana from the Mountain Kingdom of Lesotho. I work in the Transformation Resource Center as the Public Interest Litigation and Human Rights Officer in the in, in TRC. So basically TRC is, it is a civil society organization that mainly focuses on human rights, good governance and access to services, as well as public participation. So our role in this whole matter the cyber matter, I think it started in 2021 when first the government through the Ministry of Communications introduced the Computer Crime and Cybersecurity Bill for the first time in Parliament. So that is when our work around the digital space started formally. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for giving us that brief overview. I see TRC is involved in a whole lot of other um, issues that are of public interest. So back to our issue of digital rights, like uh, I I know you can't give us the whole spectrum of of the issues, but can you just give us just a brief overview of the digital rights situation in Lesotho? Where does Lesotho stand currently on on digital rights? Thank you very much. On, on this matter, I think there are growing trends around the globe and Lesotho is no exception to the growing trends 
that encompasses digital developments. So the digital situation in the country was such that there was no like there was no specific law that focused on digital rights in the country. So um, as far as we're concerned, um, we still had the constitution and other laws. So basically the laws that we should be enjoying offline should be the same rights that we enjoy online, given that the constitution operates on every platform, on every spectra. So basically I think we were... We were at a stage as a country where we tra- we see, I think there were instances of ransomware, not necessarily ransomware, but our critical infrastructure systems were threatened at some point. As a country, we've had situations where government felt that actually it was being threatened by dissidents on social media, you have Facebook, um, Twitter, and WhatsApp messages that were circulating online. Um, after COVID, after COVID, we saw when the divide, we, saw, we actually saw the divide whereby our students who are in town or rather in urban areas were able to access uh, the internet have access to their education systems while staying at home. But in the highlands, we still have a problem. I think it also has to do with the, the landscape. So basically, in at, at that level, um, it, it, it has always been a bit problematic and we do not really have um, access that is ready in the, in the, in the highlands. But I know the country is trying, but uh, there are still challenges. Yes, indeed. And, and I suppose um, the, the digital um, divide is not only rural urban, but you will find that also in the, in the urban areas, there is also uh, different layers of, of, the, of the divide um, as well. So, um, yeah, it, it looks like, yes, uh, just like other African uh, countries, they are... Um, you know, developments that we see taking place and we were exposed quite significantly, all of us, by the COVID pandemic that, uh, you know, at that point when we were supposed to now pivot to alternative spaces that are not a physical, uh, you know, meeting that we are used to. Now we found wanting because of the challenges that you are highlighting, the infrastructure challenges, and then also you are bringing out cybersecurity infrastructure issues as well. So yes, indeed, uh, thank you so much. So in in all this um, that you are highlighting on the on digital rights in in Lesotho, the overview that you've given us, what is the specific role then that TRC is is playing? in the promotion and protection of, of digital rights, as, as we are seeing that it's, a, it's an area that is significantly going, growing traction. Uh, thank you very much. Like I highlighted at the start, um, our, journey, our journey actually started when the government introduced um, the Computer Crime and Cybersecurity Bill, but uh, we've gone beyond that so much so that um, I think the first thing that we really wanted to do was to highlight to, to, to the civic society, the political society, and the media society, the dangers that might come with the promulgation of the law as it is. That's the first thing. 
Secondly, we have sought partnerships around the country. We sought partnerships with media organizations. Um, we've held, we've gone to various interviews on radio, on national television, trying to highlight the digital rights vis-a-vis cyber, cyber crimes. And in that process, we have had um, partnerships. We've had a partnership with Internews, whereby we taught on digital rights and say surveillance and how we can journalists rather journalists and human rights defenders can defend themselves can maintain their privacy their freedom of expression their association and how it could be protected online we also we were also part of the internews initiative on internet shutdowns and we participated in that and also we we were part of the digital rights training which we in which we collaborated with the center center for human rights where you work with ompa so that we try to bring more awareness of digital rights to our parliamentarians in the country from the senate and the national assembly such that now that we are moving into a digital era, if I may say, our own parliamentarians should pay cognizance to the digital rights that we they have to protect when they try to, say, maybe regulate cyberspace through the laws that they, they enact. And we've also partnered with the, the National University of Lesotho through the, the Legal Aid Clinic, um, to produce uh, a policy paper. And we've also even went to Parliament, I think it was on the 3rd of June 2021, when we went to Parliament um, to make presentations before the, the Portfolio Committee, the relevant Portfolio Committee, on the risk that we as a country may have if we enact the computer crime and cybersecurity law as it is. So that is just a highlight of the things that we've been doing as an organization in advancing digital rights in the country. I'm glad uh, that the TRC are um, uh, stepping up, in, as we have already indicated. Um, I mean, earlier on, that is, uh, you know, Lesotho is also stepping up and joining the digital world and, uh, you know, people, uh, the public is embracing technologies and all that. It, it comes with challenges, especially when it comes to legislating now. Um, you have done tremendous work and also created uh, a partnership partnerships, which I think is, is, is quite uh, commendable. And we're also very glad as the center to have partnered uh, with you as a TRC on the work uh, we, we were trying to also do from our end with the parliamentarians in the region. Um, so I know you have highlighted uh, already some of the challenges, but maybe if you can take us through in a, in a bit more detail the challenges that Lesotho generally or the, is, is facing around the issue of the protection and promotion of, of digital rights, what are those main ones that you can say, like you can highlight? Okay, thank you very much. I, um, it's a bit, it's a bit tricky. It's a bit tricky because Lesotho does not necessarily like. Uh, most of the time, we do not have documented uh, evidence of 
these things in the country, but um, I'll try to to go through them. I think um, we have a problem as a country whereby um, I, I think it, I would say interpersonal, whereby there's need to protect citizens against each other. That's the first one. The second one would be where the government tries to protect itself from the citizens. And I think thirdly would be whereby we try by all means to make sure that the same rights that we we enjoy offline should be the same rights that we enjoy online. So yes, um, I I think we we kind of see the this happening everywhere else where there's a bit of uh, you know fear on the on the governments, if I may use that word, when it comes to the issue of, of technology and how you then see the response is governments kind of trying to protect themselves. Uh, but unfortunately, that comes with uh, with the, the repercussions. I, I, I know also there are other issues as well uh, around digital rights where we can um, mention that although there is, is a whole um, you know big issue now talking about the intersection between technology and human rights, we are using technology and uh not everybody is is entitled to to this, and uh, there is a greater part of the population still in Lesotho that uh, has no access to digital technologies as well as well as uh, the the internet it itself. I think that's also is a very big challenge where we expect also the government to also uh, in collaboration with relevant stakeholders to step up in ensuring that the divide is um, is lessened and uh, they use universal access to to the internet i don't know if you want to co- also comment on that issue um i think you've laid it down quite succinctly um but yeah i think the other the other complexity that comes with the internet and the digital the digital space cyberspace is that while initially the safeguarding the safeguarding of the rights of the people offline was more Obligations were more placed on, on, on government, either negative or positive. But now we have intermediaries which provide platforms online where people exercise their rights. So it's no longer about the government. It is also about how do we make sure that these intermediaries, the MNOs, and other platforms on the internet that provide uh, a platform for us engaging online, that they have to uh, work hand in hand with the government to ensure that they do not violate our rights online. So I think that is another complexity that comes with the digital rights and digital platforms. I think my also other worry is around the issue of, uh, you know, digital literacy. As much as we are very excited about how we are connected, how we have uh, access to, to the internet, we have smartphones, we have smart TVs, we have smart this and that. 
but issues around um, around literacy are also still um, a, a challenge. And I'm sure you'll agree with me on that, that this also cuts across uh, the entire spectrum, whether you are looking at uh, people in the, in the executive, whether you're looking at parliamentarians, whether you're also looking at our colleagues in civil society or academia, the, the issue of literacy when it comes to interactions with technology is, 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 is a challenge. Yeah, definitely, definitely. When then it comes to now the cyber security issues, maybe if you can take us through the preparedness of, of the country on, on that issue. Uh, the question is quite complex, but anyway, um, I'll take it this way. Uh, as a country, um, the country has been enacting quite a number of laws in the, in the past that in which they propose establishment of councils, establishment of uh, institutions. But as a country, we've not been able to, to finance such. We've had the Data Protection Act from 2011, whereby they had to, we, ha we have to establish that commission, Data Protection Commission. <clears throat> but it has not been functional due to lack of finances. We also have the, the disability equity bill, which also has a component whereby the council has to be established, <clears throat> but rather the council has not been established due to financial resources. In the, in the, in, in the computer crime and cybersecurity bill, we also have two structures, the cyber response team and the council. So um, I'm still wondering how we would have such councils, such establishments, while the country has had legislations before, but which it has not been able to implement due to lack of finances. Also, I... I do not know how prepared our law enforcement agencies are, given that the law, the law itself is not driven, it is not being driven by the law enforcement agencies, but rather it is driven by the Ministry of Communications. So we, we, we have not been able to interact with the actual implementers of the law to the effect that we would know exactly how prepared they are in terms of the infrastructure they have, in terms of manpower, in terms of capacity and everything. So um, it's a bit it's a bit dark from, from my side, but maybe they are, maybe they are um, prepared. But we've had we've had um, incidents before. We've had incidents before, I think. In the last four or five weeks, or maybe even ten, in the past few months, there was a uh, there was a, a pseudonym, an account on Facebook that published names of journalists who they said were going to be killed, like the journalist who unfortunately lost his life. But I heard that our our police service was able to to go through and find the person behind the, that account. 
another issue that we've just had was there was a, an account on Facebook whereby um, that person named himself or herself His Majesty King Isaiah III. Um, the, the police were able to go around it and find the person behind that um, that pseudonym, if I may say. So maybe my answer to the question would be, I think we are, we are on the balance. Maybe we are, but when, it's, when it comes to certain aspects of it, we are not. Yeah. I, I certainly agree with you really on, on the preparedness. I mean, I was, I was uh, just looking at the issue of, of data protection, like how much we... Um, you know, the, the kind of lagging behind is, is very worrying on, on something that is, um, has attained uh, such a significance across the world that, uh, you know, early on, before many countries uh, had uh, data protection legislation, Lesotho already had one in 2011. And uh, you realize that that conversation was mostly non-existent in, in some countries. And now we are looking at a situation where a lot of countries have now well, gone ahead of, of Lesotho and adopted their data protection legislation and also um, established uh, a data protection authority in terms of the law, which I, I wish um, that that could also happen in Lesotho where we have like a, a, a statutory body that can be responsible for, for implementing that uh, that legislation. Because I, I also think that now with all that has, has happened, the legislation probably now requires even, um, even revision as well. And uh, there's also many other developments that are taking place, such as, you know, issues such as artificial intelligence, which has a significant impact on privacy and, and data protection. So there is um that's that's really something that I thought I could just um you know highlight and uh also I like the the point that you are raising about the the issue of financing because we know that uh, all this work will cost money and um The, the country has to be intentional about providing the necessary resources, whether, uh, you know, establishment of institutions um, or in the established institutions, ensuring that those institutions have resources uh, is, is also necessary as well. And I'm, I'm glad that you are highlighting these this gaps. I know you're saying it's kind of bleak, uh, but I, we, we are hoping that uh, with more and more awareness that uh, your organization and others are raising the situation would uh, improve Prove. So um, you have been mentioning this uh, computer crimes bill from the time our talk started. Um, and, uh, you know, your organization has been very vocal around uh, this computer crimes bill. So just for the purposes of those who are not aware, um, what does the bill uh, entail? Just a summary of, of the provisions generally. What is it? Okay. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, the bill is essentially, it entails, it has, it has two aspects to it. There's the, the crimes part, which deals with digital-based crimes. And also the, there's the cybersecurity part, which would go to the, to, to the security of our infrastructure, our critical infrastructure systems which would go to um, the security of like everything on cyber. 
So it has those two aspects. And one other thing that should be brought by this law is to bridge the gap that we saw between um, different legislations that we have. We have the, the penal code. Where the penal code does not reach, then we should see the, the, the computer crimes and cybersecurity bill playing a part. Where the, the Communications Act of 2012 does not reach far enough, then we should see it going there. Um, where we have, we also have the, we also see it um, coming um, into play uh, in the space of the law enforcement agencies. We have the, the Police Service Act. We also have the, the National Security Service Act of 1998, as well as the Criminal Procedure and Evidence Act of 1981. Um, the Computer Crimes and Cybersecurity Bill should close those gaps that were, were left by those laws. And also, what we should be seeing in that, um, that piece of legislation is that it has to strike a balance. It has to strike a balance between the law enforcement needs and the protection of our digital rights. So basically that, that is what it should be doing and that is what the, the objective entails as far as we are, as, as far as the bill is concerned. Um, so yeah, um, I think it's a it's an important legislation that uh, I mean it's designed to uh, respond to to the digital age. But um, I mean, you have been raising issues around this bill. I mean, if you can just take us through some of these uh, concerns that you have about the bill as TRC. Okay, thank thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I think um, everything has to have a history. I think. In the country, we've had a situation where the government, um, the second coalition government of that started in 2015, we saw in around 2016 when that government was being uh, in quotation marks, it was being toppled by by social media, and the then deputy prime minister even threatened to shut down social media, Facebook in particular, but because um, they do not have powers to that effect, it did not happen. We've seen situations where uh, leading, leading to elections in 2017, um, the government wanted to shut down the internet, but the Lesotho Communications Authority said it cannot do such without an order of court, so it did not happen. And around the same time, we had uh, the Minister of Communications, Mr. Hotzolizazi, who, when asked what he was going to do with people who were uh, destabilizing government online, he said he has a whip for them. So from there, we come this side, um, pre-COVID, um, as soon as we had COVID, um, we also had a new prime minister who was, um, was not necessarily elected, but who was elected by MPs. And then 
as soon as he was in in the in the office sometime maybe six months in office there was a leakage i would say a leakage of a document from his office uh, on procurement of ppe it was leaked online and then it went viral um so then uh, the prime minister held a press conference whereby he said he's going to classify government documents and he was going to make sure that the government um, um, has a piece of legislation that makes it illegal to access uh, government documents. So basically every document, most of the documents that we have here are online. So that is a little history that we had with um, like the, the usage of platforms on, on, on cyberspace. But I think it would be remiss of me if I do not indicate that um, we had very, very, very influential people who were running um, Facebook pages. I think there was one called Countdown to Elections 2015, 16, 17, which had three pseudonyms. They had Mahaula Galo, Paul Sitole, Tiradi Jami, and those people were were basically our whistleblowers in quotation marks. They were our whistleblowers because the government was not disclosing a lot of information. The government, the government then was seen to be having um, aligned with the security agencies in a way that was threatening us as the as, as the people down here and dissidents as well. So. People associated online, they had, uh, they associated online, um, they assembled online, and then they expressed on themselves online. I think that um, Facebook uh, page had over 50,000 followers. So uh, I think it, it would be seen even to you that um, that group was quite influential. And eventually, like in their predictions, there are, the countdown to elections was 2015, 16, and 17. And the last one, they were spot, spot on because in 2017, the government was down. We had to go for elections. So that is where we started with this big. So we had uh, this history, history in mind. So when the, the, the prime minister said he was going to classify and uh, mark... Um, um, you know, that, that those levels of uh, classification of government documents, the, the, the government did not want to see people being informed by what the government is doing. So after, I think, three, three, four months, four months after, maybe less than six months after the press conference by the prime minister and the offices of the Ministry of Health, the bill was, I would say, rushed. I would say it was rushed parliament, maybe to protect whatever the, the prime minister was saying. So basically that is where we, we started. And I think our skepticism started there. So it was apparent to us that, no, there was a motive behind from government, which was sponsoring this bill. There was a motive behind the passage of this bill. So we have to be critical when we, we read the substance and the contents of this bill. That is where we started. And as soon as we started reading it, there were 
definitional deficits. There were conceptual and definitional deficits that I will, I will not delve much into. But now, the problem lied in the, say, maybe more on the criminal part, where it starts with criminalization of access. Well, yes, nobody should have access into systems which they do not have authority to access. It is something that is acceptable. But if now we deny access to people who could be whistleblowers, we, have, we deny access to people who could disclose uh, maybe, say, criminal activities that are being pursued by those within the, say, uh, maybe corporate entities, the government organizations, then we would be sliding back, I would say. We would be digressing as a democracy if that is the case. So the first thing they do is deny access, which is something that is acceptable. But in the process, do not shrink the political spaces do not shrink the media spaces, do not shrink the civic spaces, which, is a, which was our concern that in the process, we risk shrinking the spaces that are essential for our democracy. So going into this bill, that is the first thing we saw. And then secondly, we have um, sections on, on data interference, which essentially um, criminalize whistleblowing such that you do not have um, to get any information that was not authorized. For all intents and purposes, whistleblowers do not have access, do not have authority to access the documents that they share with the wider public. And secondly, we see that we have investigative journalists in the country that are essential for, for the information that we get as a, as a country, critical information that we get as a country. And for them to access certain documents from government, maybe, or any institution in the country, they do not have the authority. But the way the bill is written is such that it criminalizes even whistleblowing. What I'm saying is that it criminalizes a behavior that is, a, that is accepted in a, in a democracy. So we would be digressing. One other thing that we highlighted is that th this, this legislation is, is quite vague. Like the provisions of, the, of this criminal, criminal sections, they are quite vague. And as a lawyer, my, my, my point has always been that, no, but we have the void for vagueness doctrine. If a criminal section is couched in a manner that it can be abused, then it is quite vague. If a criminal section in a democracy criminalizes certain behavior that um, uh, develops our democracy, then that is not acceptable. So that is what we also went in on to say that, no, this, these sections are very vague. 
Like, um, for example, let me say, as an individual, you know that you are not, uh, you are not, you do not have the authority to kill. So the, the definitional elements of murder, the intentional killing of another person, like the intentional killing of another person, you do not even have to crack your brain to know what is being prohibited. But when you look into, into the computer crimes and cybersecurity bill, you go into those sections, you do not know exactly what is being prohibited here. So what I'm saying is that you can even you can even read into that bill behavior that is accepted in a democracy. So in the process of trying to say criminalize access, now they are also criminalizing and maybe whistleblowing. That's data interference. We also have say data espionage, which is quite vague, which is quite vague in the in the in the law. Our concern was that no, we, we've seen where it worked. Um, we are aware of the danger of data privacy from the trial of William Assange, um, whose episode is still ongoing in the in the UK, where the US is trying to have him extradited to stand trial. We've seen it, and our concern was that no, um, it has absolutist elements in it in that it gives the government arbitrary powers and also the law enforcement agencies in the name of the obscure term of national security. And in that way, it would justify overreach of enforcement powers suffocating the very essence of a responsive democracy, which is freedom of expression. Like going back just a little into the William Assange thing episode um what what he what he published as an investigative journalist on his um online uh wikileaks thing it was not it was not a lie it was not a lie but now he's he, he he's facing uh extradition where he would stand trial for publishing the truth so basically, we are criminalizing the truth uh, through this. So we saw it. And we also have other sections on cyber terrorism, which are not well-defined, such that they, they, they only say that um, if your views as Lenyewe um, threaten the, the economic, the political, the constitutional, the um, what? Yes, the political system of this country, then you'll be guilty of an offense. Um, in a democracy, the democracy that is ruled by law, um, it is permitted for one person to have a divergent view to 99 other people. It's acceptable. So in this instance, where somebody would be posting something, say, on, on, on Facebook, it is unpopular, something that is very unpopular. And what he says, threaten, like the, 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 the political elites feel threatened by what is being published on Facebook. 
then they would use law enforcement officers to say, no, this thing is threatening our, our national security. But at the same time, you might find that the 99 people that were in agreement, they, were, they actually were wrong. And this one person that we want to persecute now was actually right. Like, um, let's have an example. Like, let's have an example. It is not real, but suppose before the, the case whereby the state of emergency was declared uh, unconstitutional and the recall of parliament were, were, were declared unconstitutional. Suppose whoever went to court had a conversation on, say, on any social media uh, platform and then said uh, the Senate the National Assembly, the development partners, the civil society organizations, all agree that in order for us to pass this constitutional amendment, and we need to uh, declare a state of emergency and recall parliament um, under the pretext of an emergency so that we pass this bill because the, the funders wanted so much. And then that person would express such there because it was a consensus thing that um, spread across like we had development partners who are financing the, 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 the reforms we had civil society organizations the government itself through um, the prime minister they were all in agreement that no this is what we want to do so that we pass this thing and then that person goes online express such, a, such an idea and then you'd find that you could have been prosecuted to say that he was threatening the, the political, maybe the constitutional and even the, the, the economic structure of the country. And he'd be prosecuted for such. So we see such dangers. So one other thing is that um, the government, the government was struggling with social media the previous governments were, were struggling with social media such that um, there were people who were using VPNs online. And these people, they had pseudonyms. Like, I'm not a fan of calling, um, um, say, accounts, fake fake accounts. <laughs> in, my, in my literature, we do not have fake accounts. Anyone can name him or herself, whatever he wants to be known as on social media. So that is not being fake. It is just an identity. It is just um, how one wants to be identified. So I do not subscribe to, to fake accounts um, term. So the government was struggling with it. But now they're trying to criminalize the information. It started with the... COVID-19 regulations, I think it was um, sub-regulation 15.7, where they criminalized, where they said um, anyone who publishes um, polls or fake news or something close to that, false information would be um, criminally liable and be prosecuted. It started with COVID, the COVID regulations. And then a similar thing, is put in, in the computer crimes and cybersecurity bill, whereby I think, in my view, information is being criminalized here because they say if misleading, misleading or deceptive 
deceiving information is published online, then it criminalizes such. And then my, 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 my point has always been, who's going to judge or who's going to have the last word on what is deceiving and what is misleading? And then I said, no, but we have our own freedom of expression here. Nobody should tell me that my point is misleading and then have me criminalized. In that way, you'd be criminalizing um, information online on the pretext that it is misleading. So my point was that, okay, let me go into the law and uh, what does the, the law say? The law says um, we, we have the net neutrality. We have the net neutrality principle. The government should not be seen to be favoring certain information over another. It should not be seen to be preferring um, an app over another. It should not be seen to be preferring a certain software over another. But by doing this, now the government, through its law enforcement agencies, would be in the arena now trying to censor what is being said and what should not be said. Like in the COVID thing, uh, I think it was upset for me to see a democratic government um, trying to silence people simply because they were not saying what it wanted or what um, the bigger powers, elitist powers wanted to be said online. Um, it was quite distressing to see democratic governments banning David Icke. I'm not saying I... I subscribed to his views. But for us as people, for us to exercise um, our choices, we, we should have access to as much information as possible. And for me, um, in terms of our constitution as a country, the constitution does not know uh, disinformation. It does not know misinformation. It does not know false information. To somebody like me, all this information, if you're going to tell me that um, um, a certain thing would cause something and then the government does not like it, for me, it's information. And I, I, I think um, we should not be in a position where um, dissenting voices are being silenced in, in a democracy. I think it's unbecoming to me. Um, then secondly, now that they have a provision to say that somebody would tell when your, your message is misleading and then they come after and then said no. And then if you are found to be using something that falsifies your header, your location and stuff, then you will be, you will be, um, uh, prosecuted. And then I said, no, 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 no. I think they were thriving at something here. People who are expressing themselves through um, certain names that they want to be identified by on social media, and then they are found to be using VPNs, to be using the, the Onion router, um, whereby our signals are sent to different... Um, routes, if I may say, <laughs> or locations, then they, they try to criminalize such. So in, in the process, in the pro process, you would find that they are criminalizing use of 
um, VPNs. I'm not saying entirely use of VPNs would be prohibited in the country, but when push comes to shove and you express yourself um, in a manner that is not um, acceptable to those the powers that be, then um, it's double jeopardy to you. You're going to they are going to have you for misleading people, and then they are going to come after you for using a VPN. That is the other thing. The other thing is they try to uh, block um, publication of investigations. And then my question has always been, um, what should a journalist do when he has information about something being prosecuted? being, say, being investigated by the police, and then he has access, or rather he or she gets such information. What should that journalist do? Should we blame the journalists? Should we blame the political actors? Should we blame the civic actors for deficiencies in the systems of law enforcement officers? I think... Um, it's unbecoming to me also because I I think the law enforcement officers should should have systems in place that that um, safeguards against any form of leakage of whatever is under investigation. But if we get that information, we should be free to have it published. One other issue that we had. Um, a concern with was the bringing back of criminal defamation in, in another form where it's where, where it says that a person who publishes information or data presented in a picture text symbol or any other form in a computer system knowing that such information or data is false deceptive misleading inaccurate da 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 da, da insulting misleading deceiving or even con Sealing the commission of such offense commits a, commits a crime. And then we said, no, um, this section, which is section 43, it has an effect of bringing back criminal defamation, which is no longer part of our law. Now that they criminalize presentation of information in a form of a in a form of a picture, we know Zapiro, Zapiro in South Africa, we can draw. They can draw, and then now we have even satirical um, pieces online. They have shifted from the traditional newspaper, paper, newspaper, yes, <laughs> to online spaces. And then somebody is going to tell me that, no, um, what you've published is deceiving, it is misleading, it is inaccurate, it is deceptive, it is false. And I'm going to criminally um, have you prosecuted. That, in effect, is bringing back criminal defamation, which is no longer part of our law. You know, the, the example, the easiest example I always give is that take the same case that threw out the criminal defamation in our jurisdiction. Take the same case, it was on a, on a print, it was on print. Now, take the same thing, put it online. Are you aware that um, you have actually criminalized the very same thing that the Constitutional Court 
Rather, the high court sitting as the constitutional court said is unconstitutional. And then I think people are starting to see such now uh, because we have our own satire in a democracy. I think um, we, we should be able to poke fun at our own selves through satire at times, through throwings. It's acceptable, but whoever feels that he, he or she is being defamed should have other civil avenues to pursue um, whatever he thinks is, 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 is compromises his or her own integrity. And I think maybe the other thing that we had a concern with was <clears throat> the, the use of words in the, in the, in the statute, you know? Um, we all know as lawyers how often um, criminal statutes are, are, are couched, like the intention part, and the unlawfulness part. But now we have a situation where crimes are, are couched <clears throat> in a manner that would compel um, the accused person to give evidence in, whole, in his or her own case where he or she is being prosecuted. So we have a section in the Constitution, I think it's section 12, 7, um, which states that no person who is tried for a criminal offense shall be compelled to give evidence at the trial. In a sense, from where I'm standing, reverse honors, reverse honors should not be part of our law. But we have, but we have across, across most of these crimes, the use of the word without lawful excuse. And then I try to inquire what lawful excuse means. It means authorization. Okay, then who authorizes? And then they say the law. So my question has always been, do you think there would be a law that authorizes an individual to access um, government, um, let's say government documents? Do you think that there could be such a law that enables them to access them without authorization. And then I, I have not gotten an answer. So I said, yes, we can have access to information laws, but such documents will be given to someone requiring them through authority. But now we have crimes where now people without lawful excuse would would acquire documents, documents even in the public interest, because whistleblowing is essentially about disclosure of what could be in the public interest, like documents in the public interest that are, that are being withhold, withheld by, say, government and a corporate entity and organization and an MNO or everything. So. This thing to say that without lawful excuse, um, it, it goes against um, our, 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 our constitutional ethos, if I may say. One should be given a fair, a fair trial. And now that we want people to, to be compelled to give evidence on something they can never, they, they would not be 
given authority to do, it means that even before you start, you are guilty. You are guilty until you prove yourself to be um, innocent. It's guilty till proven innocent because you start on the back foot as an, as an accused person, which should not be. The two last things that we had, uh, had issues with, I think it was what I've tried, what I've tried and what we have tried to do as an organization is try to, try to indicate that um, the Lord does not necessarily impose hefty fines, fines rather, on accused persons because it says um, whoever does da, 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 will be sentenced to a criminal say or to a, to a jail term of certain yes or a fine not exceeding. So um, in a literal sense, like the literal meaning of the word not exceeding, it simply says it has the upper limit. It gives the, the maximum, maximum fines. It prescribes the maximum fines, but it does not impose them because imposition of fines is the work of the court. So um, I've always tried to tell people that uh, you've made it popular to say that it imposes uh, hefty fines, but that is not the case. That is not the letter. That is not actually what the letter of the law says. So it is, it is in the discretion of the court um, to give a fine. But um, my, my um, concern was on the separation of powers doctrine principle whereby now we see one one arm of state one of one, one arm of government rather one arm of government trying to dictate for another how high it can go in in its functions i said um, i think we could have a, a separation of powers case here on this matter. Arguably, we can have it. Secondly, if the court then would impose um, an exorbitant fine on an individual who, after the, the trial, we see that, no, this person cannot even afford a fine of, say, 1000 but now he's being asked to pay um, um, maybe 200,000. And then for me, that would be the court um, imposing an exorbitant fine. Um, one, that, um, that is cruel for me, that is cruel. That would be a cruel punishment. Secondly, it violates the fair trial. Why would you impose a fine on somebody that you know is going is not going to afford it? I'm not saying that people should not be given uh, hefty fines for for crimes, but I think reasonable reasonability should 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 be the guide here. We should be given reasonable sentences. We should be given reasonable fines. So, yeah, that is it. And lastly, I think it has to do with 
it's, it's the procedural part, the the the, the search and seizure warrant. Um, I think it's section 76, if I'm not mistaken. It gives the the law enforcement officer a wider discretion to say if the search warrant, search and seizure warrant warranted you to go and seize my phone. And then when you get here, you suspect that no, but Shenyue has, I've, I'm hearing that Shenyue has a recorder in Mokotong. He has another phone with um, the husband uh, in Mafteng. And there's a laptop in Maseru. There's another thing somewhere that it gives that officer the discretion to go and seize all those items. And then I said, no, that would be too arbitrary. That would be too arbitrary. And um, it is an error. It is an error uh, because we know the procedure. We know the procedure for search and seizure of, of property and how law enforcement officers should act. The last thing that I think should be of concern was that the liability part. Why would you want to absolve a law enforcement officer where um, civilly and criminally when they execute their mandate and then they, they say criminally, they, 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 have, they, they do activities that may be criminally prosecutable. And then this particular act would um, absolve them of the liability. So I said, no, it should not be. It should not be. A crime is a crime, whether it was committed in the process of trying to execute a lawful order, but it's a crime. I understand the, the principles are around vicarious liability, but um, I think we can have debates around this issue of limiting the, the liability. With that said, it is a little that I could, can contribute to um, as far as the bill is concerned, but there are many flaws in the, in the bill. There are so many flaws in the bill that I think um, a well-meaning participation of stakeholders would have at least tried to curb and uh, as my last uh, contribution, I would say that my default position has always been to defend the, the constitution, even against the government. So I would rather be wrong trying to defend the constitution than being right, allowing the government um, to, to abuse the, the, the constitution or even exile it. Thank you. You have just listened to the Africa Rights Talk podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channels, social media platforms such as Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening.